0: I've been getting asked a lot over the last couple of weeks where the hope is, where the hope is. I think in some way we're wired toward hope. We wanna know that there's a way out of the heartache, that there's a way from darkness to light. We want somebody to assure us that it won't feel like this forever. And I'm very wary of going too quickly to hope when we're right in the midst of heartache because I don't want it to be a drug that numbs us to the challenges of this moment and to the incredible pain and anguish of this moment which is very, very close to home, for some of us literally in our homes. And yet, this past week, I was invited through the Jewish Funders Network by Tzivia schwartz to introduce a panel of family members of captives. These folks flew in from Israel and one of them actually lives here in LA. And they spoke about their loved ones and their stories of what happened on October 7th. And one of the family members whose entire family, all of her cousins in Israel were either murdered or taken captive on October 7th, declared that she had an unadulterated, unapologetic hope that her family that remained in captivity would make it home alive. And I take that to heart, and I feel that it is part of our spiritual work to continue to search for hope, even amidst the incredible pain and heartache we hold. So I've been holding this question close, navigating these days. And to try to answer the question of where I find hope, I turn, as always, to this week's Torah portion. Last week we read the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. This was a moment of profound trauma that upended our founding family. A father is commanded by God to take his son up a mountain and offer him as a child sacrifice. Abraham feverishly, fanatically, robotically accepts the challenge. He ties his son down. He lifts the knife. Were it not for the intercession of an angel at just the last moment, the child would have died. The proximity to the trauma of the Akedah is the entire subtext of this week's Torah portion. And perhaps not surprisingly, that trauma affects each character differently. First, I want to ask us to consider Sarah. As Sila shared with us earlier, this parasha is named after Sarah. Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, though she dies in the first verse. The rabbis point out, of course, that Sarah's death is unquestionably linked to the events of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Many argue that Sarah had been tricked into thinking that Avraham had actually gone through with this, and she died from grief, thinking that she had lost her beloved child, Yitzchak. But maybe, as Rashi suggests, it was enough for her to know that he had almost been sacrificed. That was enough to kill her. When she learned that, Rashi says, she received a great shock. Literally, her soul flew from her and she died. As Dr. Erin Lieb-Smokler points out in the introduction to her book, Torah in a Time of Plague, Sarah did not have to believe that Yitzchak had been killed in order to lose her will to live. It was enough to confront the terrible vulnerability that comes with knowing that she or her loved one was that close to death. This is what the brilliant Aviva Zornberg describes as a kind of shock to the system, a kind of dizziness, even nausea. She calls it theological vertigo a loss of orientation. It's enough to set everything awry. And for Sarah, it does something radical to her sense of order and coherence in the world. Sarah is completely destabilized by this trauma. She is unable to live in an upside down world. I know that some of us have felt that way this past month. I know that in some of the darker hours, I myself, have felt that way this past month. For Sarah, the feeling is unbearable. She doesn't have the support of community where she can show up every week to people who will share in her grief, hug her and tell her, I see you. She doesn't have a place to catch her breath. So she loses her will to live and she dies from grief. Avraham, on the other hand, responds to the trauma with a great sense of urgency. After burying his wife, he turns to the future with a kind of uncontained ferocity. Live, invest in the future. He sends his servant Eliezer to go find Yitzchak, a wife, as if to say, everything almost ended. We have to continue the line. No therapy, no behavioral changes, no reflection or remorse or reconsideration, no pause. In fact, later in the Parsha, Avraham actually goes on to remarry Hagar. Now she's called Keturah. And they have many more children together, but Avraham just repeats exactly the same patterns of his earlier life, the patterns that essentially broke his family years before he lives and he dies the same as he ever was. I can't go on, says Sarah. I'll go on, says Avraham. It's Yitzchak, Isaac, Sarah and Avraham's son, who insists on a third way. The first time he appears in the narrative since being bound up on that altar, Yitzchak comes to meet his soon-to-be wife, Rivka. The text says the following, Yitzchak had just come back from the vicinity of Be'er Lechai Ro'i, where he had settled in the region of the Negev. What is this Be'er Lachai Ro'i? What is Isaac doing there in the immediate aftermath of the most traumatic episode in his life, and why does the Torah think that that detail is important enough to share with us? Well, we don't know a lot about Be'er Lechai Roi. We know that it's far away from Be'er Sheva, where Avraham lived, and it's far away from Hebron, where Sarah lived. It's far away from anything that Yitzchak has ever known. So what is this place, and why is our ancestor Yitzchak there? because everyone responds to trauma differently. Sarah dies from grief, Avraham powers through, we will survive. And Yitzchak, Yitzchak chooses another way. There he was on top of that mountain, lying beneath the sword's edge. It is in that moment that he sees the story of his life with a glaring moral clarity. Life is precious and precarious. He must do everything in his power to live with whatever time he has left. His life is saved and he knows right away what he must do. So as soon as he is unbound, while his father busies himself with the ram, stay the course, Avraham, stay the course, Yitzchak runs down the mountain alone. And he treks all the way to 'er Be'er Lachai Ro'i, where his brother Yishmael and Hagar, his estranged family, live. He goes and he stays there with them for many years. We don't really know exactly what transpired in those years when Yitzchak showed up broken and traumatized and trembling and awake. We don't know how he and his brother Yishmael found their way to one another, how they opened their hearts to each other. Both of them having experienced profound suffering and injustice and pain, but they did. I've always thought that they spend years together talking into the night as brothers do, telling the truth about the heartache that they had experienced, how they were hurt, and maybe how they hurt also. It was there in the place of their shared pain that they drew spaciousness out of narrowness, that they learned to embrace one another, that they began to heal. Both of the men are forever changed by the experience of this post-traumatic reconciliation. Years later, near the end of our parsha, both Yitzhak and Yishmael have built families of their own, and when their father dies, they stand together as brothers, placing earth over his body and laying him to rest with love. Each of these ancestors demonstrates for us a different way that we can respond to trauma. Like Sarah, trauma may break our spirit. It may challenge our very will to go on. Many of us have felt this experience with trauma. It's almost impossible to imagine a way forward. Like Avraham, we may be driven to stay the course, no time to reflect, victory is our goal. Or maybe we're like Yitzhak, compelled by the realization of our vulnerability to ask the question, what do we need to do to build the kind of world that we want to live in? Know that to ask a question like this, Yitzhak needed to break the script. He needed to forge his own path. He needed to take a risk. Yitzhak here is obviously an outlier. Out of the narrowness, he fought to create spaciousness. He fought to see humanity even when his own humanity had been denied. He fought for complexity in a world of simplicity, for fluidity and growth in a world of rigid binaries. His path may be an outlier path, but it's the one that cries out to me in this moment, in this time of rigidity and of false binaries. If you mention the children of Gaza you are propagandizing for Hamas. If you post a picture of a kidnapped Israeli child, you must support the annihilation of the children of Gaza. You're either with the Palestinians or you're with the Jews. You're either with Hamas or you don't support justice for people of color in America. You silence your dissent and support this Israeli government in wartime or you are a traitor. You either decry, deny, and vilify Israel, or you have blood on your hands for supporting settler colonialism and white supremacy, never mind the fact that the country was built not by European landowners feeding their desire for wealth and wanderlust, but by refugees of pogroms and genocide who literally had nowhere else to go, who were returning to their own ancestral homeland and who are, by the way, 57% Mizrahi, Sfardi, and Ethiopian, people of color, by the way. I myself have been swinging wildly from moment to moment in a state of emotional upheaval that I can barely recognize. I can see Sarah despairing in this moment, just retreating from the world for a while. And I can see and understand Avraham's entrenchment, his need to just push forward in a simple and uncomplicated way. But I know in my heart that there is another way. So consider this just the latest installment over the past five weeks in my series, There Must Be Another Way. Because I read in Yitzchak's visit to Be'er Lechai Ro'i, something of grave importance to all of us today in an outstanding piece that came out this week. Journalist Julia Iafi writes the following. Please tell me if this resonates with you. Too many times in the past month, she writes, I have found myself trying to defend the humanity of Israelis to someone anti-Israel, or the humanity of Palestinians to someone anti-Palestinian, because you cannot fight for the freedom and dignity of Palestinians and say, that rape is a legitimate form of resistance. Just as you cannot fight for the protection of Jewish life if you think that Palestinian babies deserve this, but Jewish babies do not. Because I do not understand why the death and suffering of people on the other side evoke not empathy and grief, but fury and suspicion. She writes, if your heart doesn't break on its own, you have to break it yourself. Every time I have to say this, she says, something inside me breaks too. Every time I feel a little bit of earth connecting me to the other person snap off and the water comes rushing in. Every time I feel like I'm on an island, drifting farther and farther from land, land occupied by screaming, angry tribes. It's lonely here, she writes, on this island. As I read these words, I wept. I wept because I know that island, because I'm on that island too, this island of loneliness, surrounded by uninterrogated truths and false binaries and certainties. But in the midst of that good, ugly cry, I had the most wonderful realization. If Julia Iafi and I are on the same island, then we're not alone after all. And then I realized that it's not just the two of us on this island, because many of the people in this room are on that island too, some of my favorite people in the world. And many of our friends and our colleagues around the country and around the world are also on that island. This island, our island, is rooted in the premise that all people, all people are created in God's own image. That we have a special connection and obligation to our family, our Jewish family. And that does not in any way diminish our connection to our human family. We people on this island abhor violence. We don't want anyone to suffer. We believe in healing, and redemption and justice for everyone. On this island, we know that there's another way, a better way, that there can be a shared future for Israelis and Palestinians, most of whom, most of whom do not want to fight to the death, but just want to live in dignity, with security, with a chance for a future. On this island, We disagree with each other, but we love and respect one another. Instead of throwing violent slogans and ill-conceived certainties at one another, we listen to each other, and we learn from one another. We are enriched by our differences, not threatened by them. This week, a friend, a civil rights leader in Israel, told me that her little children were asking questions about the kidnapped Israelis. They were especially concerned about the children. They asked, how did Hamas get the captives into Gaza? She said they brought trucks and they drove them over the border. The children asked, but how did they arrange enough car seats to drive the children there safely? On this island, we want our children to have a future, all of them. On this island, we know that holding many truths does not make us crazy, it makes us human. We know that standing on the side of humanity may make us lonely, but it does not make us wrong. On this island, Jews and Muslims remember that we are cousins, that our destinies like Yitzchak's and Yishmael's are all wrapped up in one another, that even after a lifetime of heartache, We can and we will find a way to one another. Last week, Danielle Hartman said something that I found very profound. In Jewish history, he said, it's often tragedy that has forced us out of the mediocrity of the status quo. My great hope right now is that through this suffering, through this heartache and trauma, we will follow the path of Yitzchak, and we will eventually be able to birth something new. I don't know what it will look like, but I know that it will require honesty and creativity and compassion. I know it's hard to even think like this when there are people dying even as we speak, when there are families, hundreds and hundreds of them that wonder if their loved ones are even alive or dead. But I know that one day in the future, we will be called upon to open our hearts and our minds and to pick up our broken hearts and go to Be'er Lachai Ro'i, the faraway place where something new can be born. That place, Be'er Lachai Ro'i, got its name years before, back in chapter 16, when Hagar, near despair, was saved by an angel. And she proclaimed, Hagam halom ra'iti acharei ro'i, Can I not also now see after I myself have been seen? Being seen, she's saying. Being seen is what gives us the strength to see others. I know how much it has hurt over these past five weeks to not be seen in our pain. But on our island, we see each other in our pain. We hold each other's broken hearts and we dream together of a time in which we will be able to see the other precisely because we know how important it is to be seen. Fear and trauma can lead us hurtling toward the abyss. It can lead us to make poor choices. It can blind us to humanity. We are going to have to work very, very hard to shift the course, but we can and we must. There is room for all of you on our island. I hope you will come and join us. That is the hope that I am holding in these dark days. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please... Consider making a contribution to IKAR so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at IKAR.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.